0: Single planet orbiting an isolated dying star. Star one?
1: And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 27. We are up to the season 2 finale, Star 1. Yes. Written by series script editor Chris Boucher. Mm-hmm. Directed by David Maloney, uncredited because he of course was the series producer and we'll talk about that in our production notes. Yep. First broadcast on the 3rd of April 1979, ratings 8.2 million, that is a big jump for the season. That is actually the best result we've had since ORAC, and Mm. therefore the best for Season 2. So I suspect that there was a hefty amount of publicity around this being the big season finale.
2: Word of mouth that those exciting adventures on (laughs) Goth got them in this week. (laughs) Uh,
1: Maybe, maybe, maybe. (laughs)
2: We'll start with our usual background. We've obviously mentioned about Terry Nation writing scripts in series two and whatever. This was originally meant to be part two of a two-parter. The alien invasion was planned as the original storyline before the scripts were written by other people. The cliffhanger to part one was apparently intended to celebrate a crew uncovering the invasion. And it was discussed actually killing Villa and Jenna at that point Mm -hmm. as part of the cliffhanger everyone knows terry nation ran into trouble delivering the scripts they apparently went from a two-part finale to a single episode written by terry nation which is the point at which the keeper was commissioned at the last minute from alan Pryor. but it then moves to chris boucher writing the finale he used a lot of the ideas that he and terry nation had discussed and that leaves terry nation to start writing the concluding part for the start of next season so getting into it what are your initial thoughts dave look it's good. It's isn't it? very, very good. It is very, very good.
1: I said back in our countdown discussion, there were different types of well remembered episodes, mm-hmm. and one of the categories I mentioned was just the big wow series changing episode. Yep. This would surely be one of the four biggest examples of that. Mm-hmm. You've got the way back, you've got terminal, you've got Blake, and you've yep. got Star One. Yep. This is not only a big wow series turning episode, but it is extremely well written. Mm-hmm. It is extremely well paced. I was just amazed how much they packed into this. And it just doesn't flag. It is a very, very, very good episode. I doubt you're going to disagree with me.
2: Not at all. Very well-written and produced episode. I think it has a great sense of atmosphere to it. There's a lot of tension and sense of foreboding and whatever in the narrative. And really, it does that through dialogue and performance, not through special effects or big flashy moments. I think everyone is really putting in 100% to make this one work. It's also, of course, really a pivotal episode, as you alluded to, because not only does it have to tell a compelling story and be that big end-of-season thing, it really also has to wrap up two seasons' worth of story. Yes. And really set up what's to come next. And you're right, it's very well-paced, and it does all of this, actually, while it's the shortest episode in the whole series which shows just how much they do pack into this. We've said
1: before that Chris Boucher is an excellent writer up there with people like Stephen Moffat, Ross Davies, Robert Holmes, in terms of just creating a character or a situation with a very sparse amount of dialogue, and we see that here. You mentioned there the tension that builds up. Look, I can remember seeing this for the first time, aged about 12 or 13, mm. and just been absolutely blown away by what was going on, mm. especially the ending. But it's amazing. I mean, I've seen Star 1 now, I don't know, 20 times mm. over the course of the last 20-odd years, 30-odd years. Even that said, watching this again back for the podcast, I still felt the tension and the drama building yep. up. No matter how many times I've seen it, you know, you, know what's, coming. you know what's coming, you can yeah. quote whole segments off by heart, yep. and it still works. It's an incredible testament to the episode. It is. In terms of the arc, look, once again, I repeat what I said with Keeper. In terms of wrapping up the narrative beats... And the plot beats that it has to wrap up and move the characters to where they need to be, it does it extremely well. Now we'll have a longer chat later on the episode about how much that stands up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect, like the keeper, it doesn't. But in terms of just delivering emotionally, like what you need it to deliver and wrap up what it needs to deliver, sure. it does it.
2: Yeah, most definitely. So look, now we've really uh, put it up on a pedestal. <laughs> yes, um, we perhaps should start moving through it. Now I broke this down into four discrete threads, and they do sort of follow the stages in the story. I've broken them down into Serverland, which is the initial bit, Blake, which is the stuff on the Liberator, everything that happens at Star 1, and then probably the bit where we can talk about the arc, which is obviously what's going on with Travis and the aliens. If we start with the Serverland thread, which really is the opening probably five minutes of the story so,
1: so can I make the point having just bigged this episode up and put it yep. on a pedestal the opening two minutes is so tedious yeah
2: so I had that note too
0: Kelden Control this is Nova Queen I have an unidentified trace on 040 Nova Queen this is Kelden Control maintain 040 and switch to computer flight coordination
2: switching to CFC maintaining 040 it's obviously meant to set up the whole breakdown in control and stuff, but yeah, it's over two minutes.
1: It is. The explosion when the two
2: ships collide is just a
0: fraction yeah, too so late. Yes, I had
2: that note too. It's just a frame or two late. I did notice, though, that it actually reuses some of the explosion of Travis's ship from the Keeper. Right. Just to make it a probably slightly bigger explosion.
1: But again, reinforcing that point you made before about how it does the tension with the dialogue, Mm. not only do you get the way that the captain of the first ship is getting more and more anxious, but then you get Durkin's whole description about then there's what happened afterwards, yes. where it just like clearly wiped out millions of people. Mm-hmm. You know that's actually quite nasty, but it's all done with dialogue.
2: And that continues really as we move through the devastation being wrought on some of these planets. It's yeah. done obviously with stock slides, yeah, and just his description of what's going on. We've clearly arrived in the middle of a well-established crisis that's been running now for well at least two, three months. Mm. So the inference would be is this is obviously some time. After the keeper.
1: It seems to be. That's the only way you can read it.
2: Yeah. The
1: effectiveness of the scene, and in fact all the scenes with Serverland, is heightened even more so by the way that Jacqueline Pierce chooses to play it. We're very used to Serverland being very in control, mm. very calm. Now Jacqueline Pierce does play Serverland in control here, but she's instantly so defensive and so nervous. Yes. And she doesn't do it in any way, breaking down, having a meltdown, or having a crisis or anything, but you can tell that she just doesn't want to accept what's going no,
2: on. No, you get that very definite pushback against the idea that Star 1 is breaking down, because as you say, the reality is, if that is, the there's nothing she can do. No, she gets the danger, mm. but she just wants any other explanation.
0: Look, everything you've just seen has one common denominator. Computers. Not computers, computer, singular. Very singular indeed. Our unbeatable control and coordination centre. No! Serverland, by design or accident, star one is failing. There has to be another explanation. There isn't. And if you want to keep your job, you'll find it.
2: One note I did have here, and I know we said we'd talk about the arc later... She must know or at least suspect that Travis knows where Star One is. Because you have got the bit where she's been asking the strategy guys to try and run where the Liberator may have gone. Mm. I wonder, does it actually cross her mind at some point whether he's part of what's
1: happening? I think so, and I think that's part of why she's personally defensive. Mm. And, of course, she can't tell anybody that. No. Because what she's supposed to say to the High Council, oh, by the way, Travis might know the location of Star One. I know because I helped him. She can't do that. No. And again, we talk about Chris Boucher's conservative use of dialogue. Mm. The whole situation is summed up in just two
2: lines.
0: No, it's impossible, Durkin. You mean unthinkable, don't you?
2: He thinks that the location of Star 1 is clearly just ultra high-level security.
1: Yeah, he's like, look, okay, if it gets serious enough, can't you just put the punch code in and, you know, whether it's the president
2: personally or whatever, like, whoever knows this, time to tell us. But no, it is a case, look, no one knows where Star One is.
0: Well, surely, under the circumstances, you could get clearance to put a team in? Star One is the most secure installation in the Federation. I know that. Do you know why it's so thoroughly secure? Presumably because knowledge of its location is severely restricted. No. Knowledge of its location is non-existent. Duck him, no one knows where Star One is. No one at all.
2: Probably just to finish the Serverland bit, when we cut back to her, she's now started to take control of more than just the situation. Yes. And is now starting to remove the people who don't understand the reality of the situation. Which uh, includes the president. Yes. In effect, she staged a coup. Yes. My
1: take from this is that, firstly, it is a logical elevation for the character and a logical place for the character to go. But secondly, you don't stage a coup like that off you know a couple of minutes notice she clearly knew who her people were yes had them in place had the list ready to go of who would be arrested
2: yes and let's face it i mean she controls the military or at least an arm of it so she's extremely well placed
1: yes so i got the sense that this was something that had been progressing for some time and this was the moment yes
2: this provides the perfect opportunity for her to put her plan in motion The president
0: and those members of the council who are unable to accept the realities of the situation are even now being arrested. As are those of our own people whose loyalties may be divided. At a time like this, complete unity is an absolute essential.
2: Durkin really bells the cat at that point by congratulating Madam President.
1: And she doesn't dissuade him from No, it.
2: and indeed offering her his personal loyalty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I become your liege man in life. <laughs> Etc.
0: May I offer you my personal congratulations and loyalty, Madam President. And
1: the final point with Surveillance is, of course, the scene where we get to see her mobilise the entire Federation military. Yes. Which, in terms of mounting tension and increasing the stakes, getting the entire Federation fleet activated.
2: That's a big deal. It's a big deal, yeah. Yes. As she says, she will not be president of a ruined empire. It's a really powerful performance from her. Yeah. I
0: will not be president of a ruined empire.
2: Moving on, we are over five minutes into the episode before we actually get onto the Liberator. What's really
1: effective here is that We could have here yet another, Blake wants to do something and Avon's saying he doesn't want to. Mm. We actually get the inversion of that. We open with Avon saying, right, let's go, let's get to star one.
2: Yes, he does make that final push, really, at Blake. Maybe to force Blake to show his hand. Yes,
1: look, let's face it, this entire set of dialogue between Blake and Avon Mm. is not just very good, it's not just classic. It is probably one of the two or three most quotable moments in the whole run of the series
2: champagne dialogue
1: (laughs) and to that end we will drop in the main part of it here
0: we are not going to use star one to rule the Federation we are going to destroy it I never doubted that I never doubted your fanaticism as far as I am concerned you can destroy whatever you like you can stir up a thousand revolutions you can wade in blood up to your armpits oh and you can lead the rabble to victory Whatever that might mean, just so long as there is an end to it. When Star One is gone, it is finished, Blake. And I want it finished. I want it over and done with. I want to be free. But you are free now, Avon. I want to be free of him.
1: Now, there's a lot in there, yes. but basically as you said Richard, this is two seasons worth of character development, mm-hmm. reaching its apotheosis.
2: Yes, for Avon look, Blake is throwing away their chance to really win Yeah. and obviously this is the moment where he now just rejects Blake of everything Blake stands for. Destroying Star 1 leaves Blake free to rouse the rabble or whatever it is he's going to do and Avon now can just take the Liberator and be free of him.
1: Yes, our relationship is done, yep. you've got what you want, I will go over here and have at last what I want.
2: Yes, it's interesting though because Blake says, yeah, you can have the ship, but then he puts it over onto the others. Yeah, he as has As long the massive, as they're okay with it. Which is a massive out. Jenner in particular seems to have a real issue with Avon just deciding he's taking the ship. Although you'd imagine the others
1: would be far more likely to stay
2: on Earth with Blake rather than go off with Avon anyway. Oh, oh I think so. <laughs>
1: The conversation moves on, of course, to that line where Kelly is questioning the validity of taking out Star One Mm -hmm. and the cost in lives. And and we've had that already set up by the
0: speech that Durkin gives. Are we fanatics? Does it matter? Many, many people will die without Star One. I know. Are you sure that what we're going to do is justified? It has to be. Don't you see, Kelly, if we stop now, then all we have done is senseless killing and destruction. Without purpose, without reason. We have to win. It's the only way I can be sure that I was right.
2: That you were right. Course for Sector 11... Blake, really at this point, has no option but to destroy Star 1. Once again, it's two
1: seasons of character development Mm. that we've been noting as we go along. Blake just going from a resistant person, a certain callousness reaching in there, a certain obsessiveness reaching Mm. in there, getting really to a ruthless point. I mean, we talked about where he's just shouting at dying people about what he wants. Mm. And this is the logical conclusion. He's willing to sacrifice presumably millions of lives... Billions, probably. ...to get what he wants. Otherwise, it's all been for nothing.
2: As I said, he really has no option but to carry on and destroy Star 1 at this point. Mm. Because if he sets himself up as the ruler of the Federation, he's really proving he's no better than them. Plus, there's always that chance, you know, he'll be corrupted by the ultimate power. Yeah. And it it goes against everything he's espoused over the last two seasons about, you know, free men being able to think and speak. He has to smash the state and look to hell with the collateral damage. And
1: you couldn't imagine the Blake of the way back doing this. No. And indeed, I think that there's a real contrast to be made between the character that gives up his freedom because a couple of his prisoners... Yes, indeed, in that's right. And now he's willing to sacrifice billions. Yeah. Look, we're obviously huge fans of Blake 7, that's why we're doing this (laughs) podcast. But one of the things that I think really does make Blake 7 stand out as a television show, and particularly as a piece of science fiction, Mm. is something like the development of the character of Blake, And just watching that really genuine character arc Mm. across 26 episodes, ending where it has to end. And it's that thing that Chris Boucher has talked about exploring before, the incredibly fine, if not non-existent line between Mm. a freedom fighter and a terrorist.
2: Yes. There is, of course, a conversation before this around the actual journey to Star 1 which I think helps build the narrative and increase the tension. We see that Star 1 is clearly a long way outside regular human space.
1: And indeed, the model shot that we see later on of the Liberator a long way from the galaxy. Yes. Now, I, now probably scientifically too far from the galaxy. I, I,
2: I did have the note, given the enormity of interstellar space, it surely can't be anywhere even remotely close to Andromeda in real terms. No, but no, no. no. I,
1: I don't think it is remotely, but the model shot perhaps isn't scientifically accurate, but it, it is giving us that idea that, this isn't just sort of just outside the galaxy, it's potentially weeks of flying from anywhere civilised and mm. well beyond the galaxy's edge.
2: Yeah, and it's built up further, you know, Jenna has that warning that no one goes out there, so they'll be without a prayer if anything goes wrong. And then of course there's Callie's comment about them falling into infinity.
1: And the point is also made that the location that Logan gives them isn't exactly there, it's no. actually sort of a, quite a vague sort yeah. of area. Yeah.
2: I did have a note here, and look, I'm not a big Star Trek guy, so But I do remember in, certainly in classic Trek, there is an energy barrier around the edge of the galaxy.
1: Yes, in where no man has gone before. Yes.
2: Is that a thing in later? No. No, okay. Well, Blake 7 doesn't have one either, so... I mean, after all,
1: why would God need a starship?
2: (laughs) Very good. We mentioned earlier that Serverland doesn't raise the idea that Travis knows the location of Star 1. And it's not mentioned here either even though the crew explicitly know that Travis knows where it is, which I I found a little strange. Mm. Guessing it's maybe to keep Travis's arrival later in the episode, probably a bit of a surprise. Yes, I think so. Yeah, but anyway, we'll probably come back to that when we actually talk about Travis a bit later.
1: They find a white dwarf star with one planet circling it, Mm -hmm. which I must admit when I was 13, that was a really cool idea. It was. And when they discover Star 1, the point is also made very explicitly that this is on the direct route between our galaxy and Andromeda, which, again, is a really cool concept. It's then that they find the thousands of antimatter mines that I'm sure we'll be discussing later on in the episode. Yes, Which, again, that's a really cool concept. Mm. It doesn't really work. But again, we'll explore that at the end of the episode. In terms of narrative and drama, those are two concepts that just make you go, oh, that's... Wow. Yeah, but there if- is
2: clearly something much bigger going on here. Yeah, it, it um, really works. And that really does help build the atmosphere in this, that clearly they've stumbled into something much bigger. We're now really at Star 1 and our first view of Star 1 is the technicians and we have that whole mystery about what is actually happening there with them.
1: And again, very quickly, with a minimum amount of dialogue, Mm. we know that something dodgy is going on. Yes. I think that it's meant to imply, just for a moment, it could be Lorena, who is the one doing the dodgy stuff and that maybe she has gone insane. But then we get that line of dialogue she is the last one and it's implied that maybe... She's not.
2: No, because we have had that line back in Serverland's office where we're told if they do certain things, air conditioning will break and they'll, they'll go mad. Yep. Basically. There is that initial setup, whether she's the one that's the problem or whether the others are actually ganging up on her, but they do move away from that quite quickly. Yeah, I actually
1: made the note here that we go from mystery to, okay, they're the baddies, quite quickly.
2: Yes, but there is still that mystery of what is actually going on there. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, at least we know what to expect anyway. And After all, what can she do alone? She is the last one.
2: The question of what's going on here then really ramps up when we see Lorena kill that first technician. And we see from you know that sort of horrified reaction and, yes. the, and the green light that clearly something quite disturbing is happening in front of her.
1: I really like there as well that this is a character who is just a technician. Mm. And when she kills the other guy... It's not because she's, you know, capable or callous. It's really a nervous reaction. Yes, she's, and it's, she's, she's spooked. Yeah, yeah, and it's just such a human moment.
2: Yeah, and then she attempts to apologise for shooting. She finds the bodies? Yes, and that raises the tension just that little bit more, like what, you know, sort of invasion of the body snatchers of yeah. thing. it's a really chilling moment. Yeah, and it's designed, obviously, pushing her just that little bit closer to the edge. And it's actually quite a disturbing idea that they've just been slowly infiltrating the base, taking one or two technicians out at a time for the last few months or something.
1: That's certainly the way I saw it, that there would have been one, and there would have been two, and yeah.
2: she is the last one. I'm going to make the point, though, is she really the only female crew member? Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I,
2: I noticed that as well. Yeah, it, it is quite an unusual <laughs> staffing <laughs> decision. <laughs>
1: By this stage in the episode, we're getting towards the halfway mark, but we've had a lot of information dumped in on us. Mm. We've set up a lot of stuff that's going on, big picture, little picture, characters, and we've done it all without rushing and without great exposition moments. Chris Boucher actually does allow us to see rather than tell.
2: Mm. The Liberator obviously arrives and we go through the bit where they discover the minefield. Probably means it's perhaps not a great place to build Star One, maybe, sort of on the front line, but. Blake is very keen to sort of get the bombs and get down there and start the destruction. Mm. Jenna feels he's rushing. We should be taking our time planning this properly.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that here it's Jenna and Avon paired up as being that cautious one. And indeed, between them, they really have that conversation about what the minefield's for. Mm. They again just flag to the audience, is it about keeping mankind in or something else out? But that really good moment where Jenna is the one that says to Avon, Blake's not being careful enough. You need to be careful. Coming from Jenna, that's a really big deal.
2: It is.
0: Haven? Yes? Watch yourselves. Blake's rushing things. I get the feeling he's not giving himself time to think. Blake is an idealist, Jenna. He cannot
2: afford to think. Aon, of course, then gets the opportunity to get in a put-down, but... uh...
1: (laughs) But
2: it's also Jenna
1: who takes charge on the liberator. She's the one that realizes yes. the minefield is significant. She starts working on it, gets on it, gets onto Warak, etc.
2: So yeah, she has a really important role in this. She does. I will call out Paul Darrow's action pose when they first land. Yes, you notice Blake and Kelly are just sort of standing there. And Paul Darrow sort of does the quick whip, whip round with the gun. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, a lot actually happens very quickly at this point. Blake and Kelly are captured and they can't be retrieved.
1: Now, at this point, Kelly does use her telepathy to warn yes. Avon. Yes. So Kelly using telepathy means it must be a Chris Boucher episode.
2: <laughs> very much so. We get the introduction of Travis and he's caught by Avon.
1: I know here, Travis arrives 29 minutes into this episode. Okay. Which just goes to show how much we've had that. so far. Yep. It hasn't flagged at all in terms of the drama. No. And Travis arriving really is the signal that now we're getting into the final act. and Indeed. And it all, it all just smashes from here.
2: Yes. We do have Blake and Kelly obviously being captured and meeting the aliens. Blake actually does a very good job of being Travis while he's interacting with them.
1: And so it's interesting here. We mentioned earlier that Blake doesn't really talk about Travis knowing the location of Star 1. Mm. But he very quickly deduces well... If they're expecting somebody, obviously it's not us. No. It must be Travis. Yes. And goes into that, well, I'm just going to bluff him and say I'm Travis straight away.
2: Yeah. We're now really at the point where the invasion is revealed. We start to get the implications of the minefield because Jen has been doing her research. Yep. We
1: know the minefield is controlled from Star 1. We know that it's been built up over time. Mm-hmm. So it's not a case of it's just been put up. It's I almost sort of got that sense of when we can afford to do another segment, yes, we do we another will. segment.
2: We discover that there are other minefields at strategic points around the edge of the galaxy, which reinforces that idea that we've walked into something really big going on.
1: Yes, And Villa gets a classic Villa line, but again, so subtly played. Jenna,
2: let's
0: run for it.
2: To top it all off, we then get the arrival of the alien fleet. Yeah, 600 ships. And again, things from here move quite quickly. Travis escapes from Avon when he's surprised by Lorena. Mm -hmm. And again, from Avon, we see that aggression towards women when Lorena won't tell him what he wants to know. Yeah. And apparently, actually, I'll... Put a note out here for the Liberation book. They note that that was toned down from what was in the original script, which I think actually had him hitting her. Wow. Yeah, so probably a good thing. And Um, I thought the
1: actress actually played it very well in that sense of, I really, really want to tell you, but I can't. No.
2: We're now getting into the real finale of the episode. Travis comes in and shoots Blake And he just shoots him cold
1: Yeah, so after two series of Travis and Blake finding excuses Not to kill each other (laughs) We now just get to the point Well, you know, this is clearly serious This is clearly the big finale So he just shoots him Without even thinking about it But he does get another Very memorable line
0: And who is this? His name is Blake (laughs) His name Was Blake Blake
2: So actually, for Travis, this is probably actually shaping up as quite a good day. He not only gets to do his final act, but he got to kill Blake into the bargain as well. But interestingly enough, he
1: doesn't even just stop to really eulogise, to check that Blake's actually dead. He is clearly focused on something even bigger. Yes. And again, because we've come to know this character over two seasons, Mm. for us to see that this guy actually getting Blake it's a secondary thing to him like what the hell is the primary
2: well killing Blake I guess really is the bonus here isn't it so
1: the next moment is that he gets to perform the final act and he gets his other big moment of the series
0: my one regret is that they'll never know who really killed them
1: and we've talked consistently this episode about raising the stakes Mm. watching Travis turn off the first section of the minefield is like okay
2: wow now we're really on yeah we are hurtling towards the end now. Blake rouses himself long enough to shoot Travis in the back.
1: Yes, and sand pours out. Yeah, that's weird. I can only assume that he's got some sort of safety padding between yeah.
2: his body and the explosive, yeah, and, and that's, that, that's yeah. burst. yeah. Avon then comes in finishes Travis off.
0: Is he dead, Avon? Is Travis dead?
2: <laughs> yes is now. It does almost feel in some way set up just to give Avon the punchline, but it is pretty cool. It is very cool,
1: and I actually really like that all of Travis shooting Blake, Blake shooting Travis, Avon shooting Travis, all almost perfunctory. Like, they're not being dramatic. No. It's just people being desperate.
2: Yeah. We cut back to the Liberator quickly at this point, where Jenna, realising that things are now really going to hell, notifies the Federation. And she's clearly bothered that Blake will blame her for betraying him. Mm. I have seen it noted by other commentators that Sally Nevette appears to be reading from cue cards. Yeah? In the shot where she's standing over Orak looking down the barrel of the camera. Oh, okay. Yeah, watching the scene, look, I can see why people interpret it like that, but I'm, I must admit I'm not entirely sure whether that's what's happening at all. I said I didn't take it that way.
0: <laughs> what are we supposed to do, Jenna? Give the alarm. Terrific idea. Who do you suggest we tell? Servalan. Oh, now, wait a minute. I just hope Lake understands why we betrayed him.
2: Servalan, obviously, as we said earlier, now mobilises the entire fleet, and now it's on for young and old.
0: Yes.
1: The series, as we know, doesn't have a big budget. Mm. So we don't get to see, as you would today, CGI of thousands of ships. You know? No. The sort of thing that Babylon 5 would do, you know, where you'd see a thousand ships. So that dialogue where is just sitting there really nervous really calm and just hearing the reports you know
0: Flagship Galileo reports Galactic 8th Fleet underway estimated chief coordinates in four hours Cruiser Beagle now estimating rendezvous in three hours and 17 minutes Flotillas 14 and 16 confirmed four hours and eight minutes But what happens in the meantime?
1: Just all that stuff going Mm. on without any real need to spend money Yep just paints a picture of a whole fleet moving
2: Yeah I thought that was really well done Mm. Blake realises that the Federation will need Star 1 as a resource if there is a full-scale alien invasion. And that was a deliberate inversion on Chris Boucher's part to cast Blake as humanity's protector.
1: Yes, it is the moment where Blake goes beyond the Federation and actually recognises humanity. Yes. And uh, therefore, I think, is actually a moment of redemption for the character. Mm.
2: Plus, I think you also have Chris Boucher's ideas that terrorism and armed resistance rarely succeeds long-term.
1: Yeah, and in the end, humanity is bigger than all of it.
2: Yes, We go through removing the bombs. All but one. Yes. Paul Darrow gets to play action hero with the gun one more time. Yes. Then Lorena's sacrifice. And we're now really at the final scene on the Liberator.
1: Final scene on the Liberator. So Blake has been wounded and clearly is in a pretty bad shape. The Federation fleet is on its way. The alien fleet has clearly realised that the rest of the minefield is not going to be deactivated. So they say, well, we'll just come through the hole we've got.
2: Avon takes charge of the crew while Blake is in the surgical unit.
1: And mirroring the start of the episode, we now get that final scene between Avon and Blake. Mm -hmm. They started with Avon saying that he hates Blake, and now we see Blake saying that he trusts Avon.
0: Why didn't you stay in the medical unit? Couldn't you bring yourself to trust me just this once? I thought I might be able to help. In that condition? All right, I'll go back. Can you manage? Alone? Yes. Avon. For what it is worth, I have always trusted you, from the very beginning.
2: Being a bit cynical, I did have the note that is that really one last little bit of manipulation on Blake's part? I think that it is, and I think that the way that
1: Avon plays it as well. In a lot of dramas, that Mm. would have been a moment for Avon to do the whole, I trust you too. Yep. Because it's Blake 7... We're left in doubt as to whether Blake means it or it's manipulative. And Avon's reaction is certainly that he also doubts if it's real. He yes, doesn't he do the... the sincerity, yes. Yeah, he doesn't do the whole, I love you too. It's like, okay, let yeah. me get on with my job.
2: Yeah, they are going to stay and fight. I think Chris Boucher again has made the point that for Avon, there is a, a whole self-serving component to this as well. You know, if there is a full-scale alien invasion he runs, he knows damn well he probably won't survive that long. That's right. But we again end on a cliffhanger.
1: And... What a cliffhanger. Yes. <laughs> I can remember vividly the first time I saw that just shouting at the television like, No! Like you can't stop there. <laughs> just because it is it is amazingly powerful. We've said so many times now, the tension builds up over nearly fifty minutes. Mm. And by that point you are just so into this episode. Yeah. And for them to just cut it there is like it's almost physically painful. <laughs> it is so, so effective. And look, if you want anybody giving a moment of Match show dialogue to dramatically end in a cliffhanger, it's Paul Darrow. (laughs)
2: For sure. our discussion about the episode probably with the final point which i had here is travis and the aliens which is where we can maybe start looking at some of the arc stuff yeah i I guess the first question here and probably the main one from this episode is at what point did travis encounter and then start working with the andromedans so we know that there's obviously been a lot of stuff done over a lot of time Mm.
1: clearly there's been some sort of alien incursion into the galaxy beforehand I would take that to be a not a fleet of starships but a fleet of scout ships presumably the Federation took a few of them out yep. that was the impetus to go make the minefield why not two of them have clearly got away and have sort of been skulking around the galaxy waiting for the rest of them to arrive yep. at some point they meet Travis now the question is do they meet Travis between the Keeper and Star 1 or have they met Travis and formed an alliance beforehand and perhaps that's why Travis is looking for Star
2: 1 is that why Travis went looking for Dockley I probably had Perhaps two discussion points here. The first one is, did he give them the location of Star 1? Because you sort of have to ask, what else would he have to offer them, unless it's intel on the Federation? Oh, I've always assumed that he gave them the yeah. location.
1: Which again means that there is some months of transpire between yes. the Keeper
2: and this. The aliens are willing to let him come to Star 1, perform what is basically a symbolic act that they don't need him for. So...
1: Yeah, look, I've always assumed that he gave them the location. I think from their point of view, they would have said, look, we're performing the final act at three o'clock on Friday. If you're there, you can push the button, no sweat. If you're yep. not, we're pushing the button anyway. We're not waiting for you.
2: <laughs> the other point I had, and look, this is getting beyond the televised series, of course, there is a lot of fan work and more professional efforts that have devoted time to this. For example, Travis, the final act, if you remember that, that had a scene now where he's interacting with the aliens. Yes, there's quite a good piece of fiction from Alan Stevens, and apologies if I've got that wrong, on the Kaldor City site, where Travis is interacting with Logan's brainprint in the gap between The Keeper and Star 1. Okay. That was quite a good piece of fiction. Big Finish released an audio book called Outlaw, a couple of years back now, read by Stephen Greif. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't heard it, but it, it takes a much longer look at Travis's life. But there is quite a bit in here about the aliens. Yep. There is then the idea that the massacres on Zocaster and Oros uh, were covering up alien cells, that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah, so look, there is any number of fan theories out there.
1: Yeah, which is interesting. I really give Season 2 of Blake 7 a lot of credit for being a very early example of building a season arc. And again, you look at those key plot beats. You get stuff like, for example, just seeding the concept of intergalactic drives back in Horizon. Yep. You get the mentions of the control computer very casually at the start of the series. You then get the attack on control and Pressure Point. You then get them going. They find Provine, who yep. leads them to Dockley, who leads them to the brain print, who leads them to the on It yep. all works in that sense. It's also very obvious that this isn't Babylon Five or Moffat Doctor Who. No, where it's like all that. being plotted out. Or it's all being plotted out. There's stuff in here that look we can sit here and do some headcanon, but let's be honest, doesn't work with Pressure Point. And the timeline's particularly the case of that. Durkin clearly knows Lorena. Yep. And clearly didn't know her when she was 12. No. And she clearly has been on Star 1 since it was transferred there. That doesn't gel at all with a timeline that Travis
2: gives us impression point. Which implies clearly there's been at least one other location between Earth and where they are now. Lorena and the others have been put on Star 1 some time ago. and. Durkin says, you know, he was involved with her.
1: But we're talking five at most yeah, ten a long years, time ago, not
2: 30 or 40. No, she's still young and she looks the same as the picture Serverland's got. So yeah. you could see, though, there would be a progression. The team were presumably conditioned by the psycho-manipulators that Serverland's having interrogated mm. and shipped out to Star 1. If I funny to think maybe that's what happened to Leyland. That's his last... <laughs> 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 All right, you've got one last run. Take these people out there. <laughs> Anyway, once Star 1 is completed, the technicians are conditioned and, you know, they're just left there and everyone else has their brain wiped or maybe is outright killed because they're no longer useful. And then Logan and Docley obviously go on the run.
1: And is there something in the technicians' conditioning that says, if you're the last one alive on Star 1, yep. you now send the signal that says, OK, bring in the next crew? Yeah. You know, I don't know how that's being done. and It is very good. It just doesn't quite work with what we saw in Pressure Point, mm. but that's fine. The other thing that, doesn't quite work, is the concept of the minefield. No. Because if you've got the ability to travel from Andromeda to the Milky Way, presumably there is no minefield large enough that can cover the whole of the galaxy. You wouldn't think so. The counter that I've always had from it is that the intergalactic drive is kind of like going through hyperspace in Star Wars. Like, you can't do short journeys on it. No, that's right. That's much what I thought. So once you've sort of got to the minefield, you can't then use the intergalactic... No, you have to travel real time, basically, to get...
2: it. Yeah, But
1: even that would surely be a case of weeks, if not days, rather than
2: impossible. You would think so.
1: And look, potentially, in the war that comes afterwards, they don't all come through that hole. There are other waves that come around the minefield. I don't know. But let's be honest... The writing here and the acting here is so good that these are things that you don't notice when you watch it the first time. It's only because over 40 years we've really analysed this that it comes out.
2: In terms of the arc, you are really a victim of obviously the 70s ideas of continuity, really. I mean, a modern series would have planned this to the nth degree, as we said. I did have one note there about Travis. We see now clearly that his self-destructive nature and instability has now... Deteriorated to the point where he's ready to just wipe out humanity. I know Boucher had the anecdote they had to use Travis for that because they needed somebody established in the series and somebody broken enough to actually do that.
1: But it also does work in that once Travis is rejected by the Federation, yes. he has nothing to live for, and at the end just decides that the whole of humanity has betrayed him. And indeed, the final contrast is that at the end of this, Blake can distinguish between the Federation and humanity. Travis can't.
2: No, the universe has to burn. Yeah. So I think that's perhaps the end of the discussion of the actual episode, unless you've got...
1: No, I'm very ready for the production notes. I assume you've got a few for this one.
2: We mentioned at the top that David Maloney directed this uncredited. Via Lorimer was meant to direct Star One, but had to drop out at the last moment, so Maloney steps in, but there is that BBC policy around producers also directing their own series, so no director's credit.
1: Which is not to knock Via Lorimer, he's done some very good episodes, but Dave Maloney is a very good director. For Doctor Who fans, he is synonymous with some of the best episodes of particularly the Tom Baker era, Yep. The Talons of Wen Chiang, Genesis of the Daleks, Deadly Assassin. You know, those are very well-regarded episodes. He's very good at what he does, and that comes through here.
2: Yeah. The other notes I had here, I'm pretty sure the explosion where they throw all the bombs over the cliff, I'm pretty sure that's the one that brought the emergency services out. Well, it was a pretty decent explosion. Yeah, it was. Because it's cut in, I did sort of do, the, oh, maybe that's stock footage, but I did a bit of reading, and I, I think this is that one. One of the better-known anecdotes, I think, around Star 1 is that Terry Nation suggested the aliens could be the Daleks. Yes. That is apparently true, but was nixed quite quickly. So I suspect the discussion might have been something like, wouldn't it be cool if the aliens were the Daleks? No, Terry, it not <laughs> <laughs> This obviously was the last episode filmed. The location filming was done in early February 79 while they were doing studio rehearsals for Gambit. It's actually the week Pressure Point screened. Okay. Yep. So we're about eight episodes ahead. There's then three weeks where Gambit and The Keeper are rehearsed and recorded and then Star 1 goes into rehearsals late February and is recorded in early March as Countdown is being shown. So it's about, okay. about four weeks ahead. Yeah. The last scene film was apparently Travis's death.
1: And just on that what is that that he falls down?
2: <laughs> well, I think it's meant to be obviously some sort of reactor shaft or yeah, something. something but like that, yeah. The conveniently placed pit in the middle of the set. Yes, it's very cool. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> because it doesn't actually seem to serve any other purpose than for Brian Crouch to fall into it. No, it is
1: very much that galaxy quest, like, who designs this thing? <laughs> <laughs> but who cares? It's a very cool moment.
2: Yes. One final note I had, and it's an anecdote from Matt Irvine. One of the points made about the alien fleet is that all the ships are different. He did say that in hindsight, it would have been better if the ships were all of a uniform design. But this was done very quickly with no budget. So you got what you got.
1: Yeah, it is very obvious that the fleet is actually one piece.
2: Yes. These are just a collection of objects that can be quickly made to look yeah. like spaceships. Particularly if
1: they're lit very, very darkly. Yes. Look, it gets the message across, as Mano and I said many times, how much money do you spend on something that's on screen for literally a few seconds? Yep. The alien craft that Travis arrives in is a classic example. That is on screen for about half a second. You
2: know, how much money do you spend for half yeah, a second? Yeah. Of course. So time to go to our regular segments. <laughs> As always, our first regular segment is guest cast.
1: So the first is John Bone, who plays Durkin. His first credit goes back to 1957, when he was in Vanity Fair. He was in the Doctor Who and the Daleks
2: movie. Ah, the Cushing movie, yes. The Cushing
1: movie, yeah, playing Antitus. He's in the Avengers. He was Commander Neil Stafford in 12 episodes of Doomwatch. Yep. Which was a very contemporary sort of thing. We have another example of someone being in the On Eden line.
2: Yes! <laughs> Yeah, he's also got roles in a couple of Hammer movies. One of which was Vampire Circus, where oh, he, uh, okay. uh, where he actually appeared with Jenny Twigg. Okay, uh, <laughs> he also had a bit more unusually a role in the final episode of the Secret Army. Uh, which is the one they didn't screen.
1: Oh, okay. I did see that credit, but I didn't realise it was that episode. Yeah,
2: it's called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? So at the very end of The Secret Army, it was supposed to wrap up with an episode where they came back 20 years later and you see what's happened to them all. Okay. It wasn't screened for a few reasons, one of which was that they decided to produce a follow-up series around the character of the Gestapo officer, Kessler. So some of the ideas were reused there. Yeah. We mentioned Jenny Twig a moment ago. She also did a lot of stage work. She's a recurring character in General Hospital in the mid-70s. She's another one in the Aneedon line. Yes. She's in the final four episodes. She's also in the final season of Hadley, uh, alongside Gerald Harper from Adam Adamant Lives Okay. fame. She also had a recurring role in Grange Hill, a Zamo Maguire's mother. Oh, okay. Yes, which means she went through that whole addicted to heroin storyline. Yeah, that was an tense plotline for a kids TV show well one of the cliffhangers like is basically him in a coma isn't it after he's had a bad shoot up or something
1: yeah I, I remember one where they opened the door I think it's a car door and they just find him or something but yeah
2: yeah 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 again look she's got roles in other stuff like Zed Car, she's in The Professional she's in The Bill and indeed yes yeah, she was also in Vampire Circus as we <laughs> said a moment ago <laughs>
1: So I'll continue with David Webb, who played Stott. We've got a couple of notes here, but I'll just start with some of his credits. He is this episode's link to Rumpol. Yes. He was in Rumpel and the Learned Friends. He was in Doctor Who. He had a small part in Colony in Space.
2: Ah, yes. He's the guy who gets killed by the fake lizard. By the The... fake giant lizard, yes. Yes, in the first episode. Yes, That's right,
1: yes. His first credit is in Rupert of Henshaw in 1957. He had a role in The Life and Death of Sir John Falstaff, which was a big thing.
2: Okay.
1: He did nine episodes of Compact. And he also did the 1980 Tale of Two Cities, which was like... Oh, the Barry Letts one. Yeah, the big production of the time, yeah.
2: Yes. He's in a lot of other stuff too. He's in a lost episode of The Avengers. Uh, He's also in the new Avengers, I think. And interestingly enough... On the night Star One was shown, he actually appeared on ITV in another production called The Winkler. Okay. So there you go. You could have changed channels and watched him a second time. There you go. A lot of stage work on the resume. Yes. But he also did a lot of TV work from sort of the late 50s. Away from acting, he was the founder and I think chair of the National Campaign for the Repeal of the Obscene Publications Act, Mm -hmm. which was an interest group. ...that clearly was interested in the repeal of the UK's Obscene Publication Act.
1: Which was, to be fair, incredibly draconian at that point. Yes. Very much like the Eros Foundation here.
2: Yes. He actually also stood as the anti-censorship candidate in the 1983 general election... Against Margaret Thatcher in her constituency of Finchley. Now, I'm fairly confident he lost that one. Yes, he did. He was also up against Screaming Lord Such. Yes, he would have been. Yes, he got a grand total of 28 votes, <laughs> and Mrs. Thatcher got close to 20,000. So <laughs> <laughs> he didn't join Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> Staying with the aliens, we then come to Gareth Armstrong. Mm-hmm now he also has a body of quite prestigious stage work
1: yes very shakespearean sort of stuff. yes
2: he also had a, a one-man show based around the character of shylock which i think is pretty much two of the world wow. he also teaches directs he's a writer as well for genre fans of course look he is in the mask of mandraga for doctor who as count giuliano yes he is the voice of sandy in uh, the english version of monkey yes He's also done a lot of other TV roles. He's in The Professional, he's in The Bill, he's in One Foot in the Grave, Birds of a Feather.
1: Hail Caesar in 73 was one oh, yeah. of yeah.
2: He also does a lot of audiobooks. He now does video game voice acting. Okay. Um, he's actually done quite a bit of work for Big Finish. And I guess probably the two minor roles for this were the two speaking part technicians. One of which was a chap called Michael Maynard. Now... He doesn't have a very long career. A few roles in the late 70s, sort of through to the mid-80s. George and Mildred, he's in mind, art the professionals. But he left acting, and he's now one of the directors of a company called Maynard Lee, which is a, almost a worldwide company that specialises in personal and professional development courses. Okay. The other one, just very quickly, was Paul Toothill. He doesn't seem to have had a very long career. He had a few roles in things like Bread and Hanna. He actually, unfortunately, died quite young. And on that sad note, we'll move on to, it was the 1970s.
1: So I've got a couple of notes here. I, I don't know how much I'm reaching, but we'll, uh, yep. we'll give it a crack. The minefield and the whole standoff between humanity and the Andromedans, yep. I wondered if that was a reflection of the Cold War, the Berlin okay. Wall, that yep. sort of thing. I will note that in the future, season five and six of Deep Space Nine... A large galactic minefield <laughs> separating the Alpha and the Gamma quadrants <laughs> was actually a very big part of that plot. The Federation putting it up and then how the Dominion were going to get it down. Uh, so I don't know whether that was a direct lift. One thing I noted in terms of military coups and serverlands takeover here this episode, as we said, was broadcast on the 3rd of March 1979. Yep. The Shah of Iran actually leaves Iran for the last time on the 16th of January. Ah,
2: oh, the and, and, revolution, yeah. And of course, yeah. the revolution
1: had been going on since about October the year before. Yep. We know that Chris Boucher was a watcher of Middle Eastern yep. defence, so I don't know whether that was in his mind. Of course, quite famously, the Argentinian Junta had taken power and removed Isabel Perón as president in 1976. Yep. So that was quite a well known military coup, and they obviously continued until mm. they fell down after the Falklands War in '83. And another one that actually would probably have been in the UK headlines, just two years before in Pakistan, Muhammad Zia al Haq had taken over the government.
2: General Zia, yes. Okay. Yes.
1: And the day Mm -hmm. after this was broadcast was the day that Ali Bhutto was actually hanged after the show trial. So, yes, uh, they were probably three examples of military crews that would have been very much in the zeitgeist at the time.
2: Wow, my notes for that are nowhere near as good (laughs) because I actually just had the note that this is a very 1970s production that today would have been an all stops pulled out high SFX. Oh, absolutely. Here it is. Quite joyously low budget, and it relies on the script and the performances to make this work, which I think it does in spades because everybody really is putting in for this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I I agree. It is the best example of the limitations and therefore the strengths of 1970s. Mm.
2: Now, on to the Liberator database. So, one note we do get here is that Aurax Carrier Beam is the fastest and most efficient means of contact in the Federation. Yes. We note that Travis is wearing his uniform again. Which maybe adds a bit of symbolism, perhaps, to the final act for him? I think so. It's sort of like that scene near the end of A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson's 2IC puts on the full dress uniform... Oh, yes. ...and then commits suicide.
1: Yeah, absolutely It is very, very much like that. Of course, after two seasons of us sort of assuming, are there aliens out there and not really seeing them, Mm -hmm. we now definitively have an alien invasion from the Andromeda galaxy, and they're referred to in Black 7 Phantom Circle simply as the Andromedans.
2: yes. We do have the actual location of Star 1, which is, as we've discussed, well outside the the theoretical edge of the galaxy, and the surrounding minefield.
1: And we also get a lot of other background data about exactly how much of the worlds of the Federation Star 1 does control. The weather, space traffic, it's Mm. incredibly powerful. Yeah, Yeah. So our next segment is What Happens Next, and I've just made the note, Season 3. Well, yes! (laughs) Because I think everything that I was covering here actually would lead to spoilers for the next episodes.
2: If you're a big Finnish listener, what actually happens next is their audio play, Warship. That's true. We are left with the idea the Liberator is going to have to sit there and engage the alien ships for at least an hour. We're told right at the end of the episode the first of the Federation ships is just over an hour away. It's very
1: Horatio at the bridge, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. And I'm assuming in the background, Serverland is probably still uh, continuing with her coup. Presumably, yes. Hmm. But we'll see how all that turns out. In season three. In season three, (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah. Indeed. Which leads us to our final regular segment, and very apt for this one, What Cool Lines Did Chris Boucher Give Avon This Week? Because we are, of course, in a Chris Boucher episode. Yes,
2: and it is chock full of it Avon lines. It is chock full of
1: them. Look, there is, of course, that speech.
2: Yes. Avon gets probably one of his better-known little quotes, Show me someone who believes in anything, and I will show you a fool.
1: Yes, he also gets the very Western line, Now talk or scream, Travis, the choice is yours. <laughs>
2: Blake is an idealist Jenna. He cannot afford to think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he has a couple of lovely little exchanges with Lorena. The first, where she says, They're all dead. Yes, I can see that. Did you kill them? No, they're trying to kill me. They have a very novel approach to the job. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, where they've shot the island, it's turning yeah. into its blob form. And Lorena says, What are they? Unfriendly. Which is fortunate, really. They'd be difficult to love. <laughs> and the other one that's very simple but again very Chris Boucher and Avon after Blake says is Travis dead he shoots Travis Travis falls down this thing screams dissolves
2: he is now <laughs> and finally we have the exchange right at the end of the episode where Villa says Avon this is stupid when did that ever stop us <laughs>
1: <laughs> this segment could be designed for this episode oh, I think so it yeah. is
2: really really good yes
1: which I guess brings us to our player of the week. And yes. after this conversation, I can sense a
2: snap possibly yes, marching there might over her. I think. So look, you can go first. Who's yours, Chris Boucher? Snap. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah look, we have praised this script deservedly, in my opinion. Yeah. It is amazingly well written in terms of getting huge amounts of plot done in a very small amount of time in terms of ticking off all the things he needs to do. He needs to make Serverland president. He needs the crew to find Star 1 and end that whole plot. He needs to write out Travis. He needs to have a big cliffhanger. He does all of that while still making it a really well-paced adventure and just having great dialogue in it.
2: And considering this was written probably only about two months before it went in front of the camera, I think this is a magnificent effort. So,
1: look, Chris Boucher for his script is Player of the week for mine, but yep. there are a number of great performances in here that we could have also given.
2: Yeah, us. I did have a couple of honourable mentions. Jacqueline Pierce again, makes my list because I thought she was great in this. She hasn't got a big role in it, but I thought she was great as always. On the same note, I
1: again noted Sally Navette, yes. who is, although left on the Liberator, on this occasion she actually takes charge of the whole plot mm-hmm. and in some way she's the one that saves humanity.
2: Yes. Because she's
1: the one that, after... Blake sort of dismissed the interest in the minefield. She pursues, what's this minefield for? How does it work? And then she's the one that works out what's going on and goes and calls for the Federation. Yep. And Saladin Levin, again, when given confident roles to play, mm. plays it really well.
2: Yes. I also had notes for Paul Darren and Gareth Thomas because, look, they're as solid as always. Absolutely. So what is there to say? Great script, great performances, great episode.
1: Yeah, and it is a very good and I think very effective finale Mm. to Season 2. As I say, pull it apart, and some of the stuff doesn't quite work. That's a reflection of the time it was written in and the way it was written. But this is as good as I think sci-fi drama gets. Yep. I think it's a very effective wrap-up to Season 2. And we will be discussing Season 2, or Series B, in more depth next episode in our Series 2 wrap-up. After which we will, of course, start Season 3 with Aftermath.
2: Yes and Terry Nation is back
1: Terry Nation is back so we hope you've enjoyed Star 1 as much as we have and we look forward to talking about the implications of all of this a bit more over the next couple of episodes
2: yeah I had a lot of fun watching this
1: and a lot of fun doing this one absolutely but until then I've been Dave I'm Richard set course for Sarah. stand
0: by to fire Avon, this is stupid! When did that ever stop us?
1: Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7.
0: I ask you an impertinent question? If you don't mind an impertinent answer. I have taken on the shape of your species. I use your words and yet I cannot understand you. The woman Lorena and the other technicians that were here these I could understand but you. Why have you betrayed your own kind? Why have you given us the means to eradicate your species? Eradicate humanity? Virtually. Maybe I just don't like crowds.